The scripture reading today comes from John verses or uh, chapter 11 verses 32 to 44. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in the spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So Jesus said, see how he loved him. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Thank you. So in a minute, I'll ask those of you who uh, are the praying kind to pray with me. But first, a, a note, just a note that we give whenever we read from the Gospel of John, because we live in different times than John did, and it's been a long time since John lived. Um, something that John does a lot in his gospel is he will speak about the Jews, right? The Jews did this. The Jews felt this way. And um, for our modern ears, it can rankle a lot, right? Both because to talk about any group as sort of a monolith feels a little strange. And also because we are living in a time and a space where we know the massive amount of damage that Christian anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish sentiment has done to the world, right, and how, how bad that has been. One of the things to remember always when we're reading the Gospel of John is that for John, he's having an intra-family conversation. He's talking to his community about the things that make him mad about what they do. So it's always good to interpret if you grew up evangelical or if you grew up Presbyterian, right, the way that you would write a letter to that group is different from the way that you would think it was okay for another person to write a letter to that group who wasn't a part of it. So the way that John talks to his community is not the way that it's okay for us to talk about any community except our own, right? Other people aren't allowed to talk about your sister the way that you're allowed to talk about your sister, right? That's just the way that it is. And so I always think that's important to clarify when we read the Gospel of John because he does it a lot and it sounds weird and we're like, what is this? And so we'd always just need to remember, right, what's actually going on here and what about it is relevant for us now and what about it isn't. Cool? Cool. All right. Now, if you would pray with me, please pray. God of grace, 
and mercy and power, God of our grief, God of our pain, God of our love and our laughter and our confusion, be with us in this hour, in this moment, on this day that is consecrated unto you, that we might know you more deeply, that we might feel your presence in our pain, even when we, like Mary, are mad at you for not showing up when or how we thought you would. God, this day, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be of you, be acceptable unto you and your love. And if they aren't, help us to notice, to turn around, to forgive ourselves and one another, and to set forth once more on your path of endless mercy and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, this week is a week that we think about death in so many different ways, right? Today is Halloween, a celebration like many around the world where we think about death with costumes and tricks and joy and funniness, masks to hide ourselves and candy to elevate our blood sugar, <laughs> Many um, festivals of death look like this. They are um, festivals that get at the tricky nature of death, right? And one of our responses, which is to be bold and to laugh in the face of it. This week is also All Saints Day, a day of um, more solemn but still celebratory, right, honor, of those who have died, saying, we know that just because your body has died doesn't mean you aren't still with us, doesn't mean your impact isn't still felt, doesn't mean you aren't a part of spiritual community, and we celebrate your home going, right? Your um, community with God, your safety in God's hands, and the ways in which you continue to impact this eternal communion over time of which you are a part. And then it's also um, becoming winter, right? It's a time when the leaves are dying on the trees, when the fruits and the flowers are beginning to return to the earth, when some of us might be starting to get our seasonal affective disorder or our brain chemistry off because of the time change next Sunday. And this can bring us in touch with the part of death that is truly just sad, where we just feel um, bad about it and don't know what to do about it, and we feel depressed or angry. And the beauty of Jesus Christ, of being a, a person at all, and especially of being a person in community, is that we don't have to pick between any of those things or any of the thousand other ways that death day by day and hour by hour makes us feel. There isn't just one way to have a loss. There isn't just one way to grieve. We experience all of it all the time. And for those of you who have experienced a loss, you may know 
that it never really stops. It just gets different as time goes on and you experience that grief in different ways. I think probably the times that I have laughed the hardest in my life and the times that I have cried the hardest in my life have both been at funerals. And that's just the truth about how my body and spirit experience this shock to the system that is death and loss. Something I say to people, because I spend a lot of time with grieving people, both people who are grieving someone who has died and grieving other kinds of traumas and losses that come up for us, right? Shocking experiences, the loss of a job, the loss of certainty. Something that I always say is something that I learned from a trauma theologian, which is that trauma can affect you in every single way. Loss can affect you in every single way. For some people, you want to eat everything, right? This is what funeral potatoes and funeral chicken are for. <laughs> you want to fill your body with sustenance and remember what it is. Some people have no appetite, right? It's like your body becomes a ghost to you. You couldn't, it would make you sick to eat. Some people want to go out and live life. They want to go skydiving the next day, take a giant risk, get the adrenaline flowing because death has reminded them of all of the ways that they want to just experience the world. And some people have to sit in a cocoon. This, my husband is Jewish and right, his family will sit shiva where you literally sit in one location in your home for seven days creating this cocoon of care and remembrance and, and just be and not do and not think for days after. Some people respond to death and trauma by wanting to have sex all the time or other pleasures of the body, right, that they need to connect with their physical self. Other people could not imagine having pleasure of the physical body for weeks and months after. And none of those are right or wrong. <laughs> the only way to do it wrong, and even then it would be a place in which we could find Jesus's forgiveness, would be to not acknowledge at all that something is happening to you and that something is going to keep happening to you for a while. And, and I've been thinking about this um, not just because All Saints Day and Dia de los Muertos and this time of year is a really important time that we have in our church calendar to remind us of the deaths that we all experience all the time and sort of need to process and find and like engage our faith in. But because we've just gone through a period of mass death that probably for most of us is the greatest that we've ever experienced in our lifetime, in our nation and in our world. And the, the pain associated with that um, is indescribable. And the consequences of that are things that we just don't know yet. <laughs> I, I look at my children and um, I don't know what this is going to mean for them in 20, 30, 40 years. There's a lot that we don't have answers about. But I have that same feeling, which is that the only thing we could do wrong at this moment would be to not acknowledge what we just went through and the pains that all of those deaths have caused. And I see a lot of people and a lot of parts of the culture that I think are trying to do that, right? Because to touch pain is frightening. To touch the abyss of how bad things can go and how being a good person doesn't keep you from having a hard time is really frightening. 
and we don't want to do it. And so I already see people sort of wanting to move through and be like, yep, those two years, those were bad, that happened, let's put it, you know, let's shut it off, put it in the box, put it underneath, never think about it again. And boy, if that were possible, I might do it. <laughs> but what we know from experience is that it is not. Those boxes don't stay shut. They come out in our actions and the way that we act as a community and the way that we treat each other and the way that we move forward in ways that just are unarticulated because we refused to tell the truth about how much it hurt and about how much had happened. Getting through life without being impacted by tough stuff just isn't one of the options. And so we have to find a way to be fully honest about whatever it is that we're experiencing in the moment about what has happened to us individually and to us as a community. What that doesn't mean is having answers, like you know why it all happened or what it all means now. Most of us are never going to figure that out. And if we are, it's going to take time and prayer and intimacy. But it just means being honest about wherever you are right now, right? I am feeling thrilled and like I want to change everything about my life, quit my job, move to a different apartment because of what we just went through. That's honesty about where you're at and what you're experiencing. I am feeling like I would like to hibernate like a bear and can sit in my room for the next six months until some part of my psyche recovers is honesty, right? About what we've been through and what we've experienced. Or just, I have no idea, but I'm walking through the world and I don't know when things feel different again is honesty about what we've been through and what we've experienced. And, and that's why we chose the particular death scripture that we chose for the day um, to be this one. Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Because the scriptures are filled with stories of death and grief and trauma and resurrection and hope and hope alive for a community of the future. It's one of the great themes of being human, right? It comes up over and over and over and over again, and we see people deal with it in all kinds of different ways. Elijah, who needs a snack and a nap, right? Or like David, who goes to war and makes some mistakes. Like we see a lot of different versions of handling death and grief. But to me, this one is the most deeply human. For all of the questions it gives me and for all the questions it doesn't answer, it's the most deeply human, and so I carry it with me wherever I go um, when I'm trying to figure out what it would mean to be a person who can grapple with this part of our reality. It's that for a couple of reasons. One, um, is that people are mad at Jesus, right? Not just like, oh, those people who never got on board with Jesus, but like disciples, his friends. Mary and Martha are angry because it feels like Jesus has failed them utterly. They are pissed, right? You didn't show up in time. You let my brother die. What are you doing here? That's how Mary starts the conversation. And that is never really, um, that doesn't go away. I, I have three younger brothers. I imagine if, if I had to live through those four days, if I felt like my friend who could do miracles hadn't come on time, just because he was resurrected from death wouldn't mean that I would forget that pain or what it felt like. 
And it's important for us to remember that the scriptures honor these kinds of feelings towards Jesus and towards God. They aren't unfamiliar to them. They aren't scandalous to them. They are natural. It is natural that Mary feels this anger. It is also natural that the scriptures um, open the story wider, right? This is a great question that was offered to me once. Whenever you're in a a point of tension or conflict that you just can't get through, um, or you are feeling like resentment or anger about something, if you have, you know, something happens at work or something happens with your spouse or something happens with whatever that makes you so mad you like can't even understand anything, the, the question is, what else is true? What else is true, right? I don't have to deny how frustrated I am about this one thing, but then what else is true? I think that's the move this scripture makes as well, right? Mary's anger is not wrong. Mary's anger is not unjustified. But then the scripture goes to ask, what else is true? About why this might happen, about all of the things that Jesus has had to do, about the retreats he's had to take, about the pressure he's under, about the other people he's trying to serve, about the ways in which other families exist besides Mary and Martha and Lazarus's. <laughs> and just because Jesus has fixed this one problem, does that mean that everybody else's grief is assuaged, right? What else is true? And it's also deeply human and comforting to me in times of grief because Jesus weeps, right? Like, Jesus feels the pain of Lazarus, of Mary, of Martha, of this family, of this town. Jesus feels the whole thing. And we see it. We see him do it. We see him walk through and and feel the same things we feel when somebody that we love dies. And I don't think any of that goes away either once we see Lazarus resurrected. Someone... um, from a church community I was a part of, a beloved person went through um, an extraordinary loss. I can't imagine a loss as or more painful than this one. And they were sort of trying to figure out afterwards what their faith would be, if if they could ever trust God again, basically, right? Or like if faith was going to be a part of their life or if it couldn't be. And one of the things they said to me was, (laughs) even when I'm done with the whole rest of it, when I can't trust God or scriptures or the church anymore and I'm so angry about what I've lost that I can't approach them, this messy person of Jesus continues to intrigue me, right? Continues to compel me, continues to call to me just enough that that like chain link and that that thread of the rope stays connected for me. And this is one of those moments where, where Jesus does that for me, when the whole rest of it becomes hard to understand or hard to believe. A Jesus who weeps even as he knows he has the power to resurrect. A Jesus who experiences real community, friends who he betrays and gets mad at him, and who get mad at him. His own need for rest, right? Why wasn't he there? Because he's taking his first rest on a mountain. Jesus who experiences the hungers and the appetites and the failures of human life, that keeps me in. (laughs) And that keeps me hopeful that a person who understands our grief that deeply, who understands our pain that well, would not at the end of the day, even if he leaves us without answers we're not capable of understanding, that person would not leave us without hope. 
that person would not leave us without some joy, some community, something in which we can place our hope for the end of the world, the end of the universe, connection to others, whatever it's going to look like, some hope that that grief will not be the only thing we ever know, that something will wipe the tears, that something will reconnect the us, the people who we've lost and who have gone before us, and that there is something yet of the story to be told when we are in the parts that feel like the most horrific end to that story. That is how a lot of people present and read this scripture is basically as a like, whenever you've experienced loss. So this, this happens to most people in most religions, but it especially happens to Christians because we're in a country where we're the majority and where, you know, we have a hard time facing our pain, and like being quiet with our feelings. Is that you'll experience an incredible loss and someone will read you a scripture like this and say to you, um, well, Jesus resurrected Lazarus, and so Jesus will resurrect your dead friend too, and so like, stop worrying about it, right? Don't think about it anymore. You don't have to be in pain. You don't have to feel it. Um, and that, I think, is both not helpful and not true because of what Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus feels it all. Jesus knows he can resurrect Lazarus, and that doesn't mean he doesn't cry. Jesus knows that Lazarus will live once again with his sisters, and it doesn't mean that he isn't shocked. It says he is disturbed, moved, twice, three times. It doesn't mean it doesn't change his whole experience of being in a body and being in the world and being in community. He knows that there is a way that we will come together again, that there is a way we will know one another beyond death, past loss, and yet he still experiences the whole thing of it, all of it, the sorrows and the joys and the strangeness and the disturbing parts. So there are a few answers for us this Halloween. There is no color by numbers. Here's what happens when we die, so don't think about it anymore. There is no list of 10 things. Here's how resurrection works, so now you don't have to wonder. If I could provide those, well, I actually think the world would be much less healthy, but certainly a lot more people would, would want that. But what we do have is a great accompaniment in however it is we are experiencing loss and grief. We have an extraordinary partner. We have a Jesus who knows what it's like. Whether we experience grief fleetingly or all of the time, as a bodily heaviness and burden, or as a frantic lightness. Jesus knows, and Jesus is with us, and Jesus says to us, I will knit you together, but until that day, I will simply be with you. And however this happens to you, and however you feel, and I will never, ever, ever leave your side. And so in that knowledge, we must place our hope, our rest, our trust, and see what it does, and see how coming together changes us and helps us learn. Because the other thing we see from this story of Lazarus and Jesus and Mary and Martha in the particular is that um, there can never be grief without love, right? Grief is really an extension of the most powerful emotion and most powerful tool that any of us have. 
And so if we were to deny our grief, it would be to deny our love and so much of the joys that come with knowing life and knowing Jesus. So let us not shut any doors, but open our hearts and open our questions and ask God to come into them as God has so many times before to offer at turns relief and hope, provocation and frustration, and always accompaniment so that we are never, ever alone. And for this we give thanks. Amen.